This is KMTT and today's Thursday this Zman Choref Taf Shin Ayin will be having a series by Rav Kalmin Newman on society and halacha. Hello and happy Hanukkah. Today is the eighth session in our series on halacha and politics. And today we will start dealing with the contemporary question of halakha and politics, namely, how do we understand the halakhic status of the State of Israel? In order to start, we have to define exactly what we are talking about. If, for example, we go to the ground zero of the existence of the State of Israel, the Declaration of Independence, on Daud Biyar, actually, uh, when the declaration was given a few hours before Heiyar, uh, what can we learn from that about what the state of Israel is? So many of us have read the declaration. There's a long preamble describing the history of the Jewish people, the history of the Zionist movement. It mentions the Holocaust. And then it mentions that on November 29th, 1947, the General Assembly of the United Nations decided on the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel, and it is the natural right of the Jewish people to live like every people independently in its sovereign state. Therefore, we have gathered together the members of the Moetzet Am, the representatives of the Hebrew Yishuv and the Zionist movement, and on the basis of our natural and historic right, and on the basis of the decision of the UN General Assembly, we are announcing the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel, which is to be called Medinat Israel. After that comes the famous paragraph, often quoted in Israeli internal politics, about the declaration that the state of Israel will be based on the principles of freedom, justice, and peace according to the vision of the prophets and that there will be equal rights, equal social and political rights for all its citizens without difference of religion, race, or gender. There will be freedom of religion, of conscience, of language, of education and culture the state will protect the holy places of all the religions and will be faithful to the principles of the United Nations Charter. Why did I read all this? Because there, I think, are two basic questions regarding how we are to understand the way in which the establishment of the State of Israel fits into the halachic categories that have we have begun to discuss in our previous meetings. One is who established the state, and two, what was their intent in establishing the state. Let's start with number two. It seems clear, both based on the preamble and especially based on what we said at the end, that the declaration says that the state of Israel will be faithful to the principles of the United Nations Charter, it seems clear that here we have an exact example of a wish to create a state, 
the state of Israel is being established precisely as a state like any other state, a state that fits in to the contemporary conception of what a state is. It is limited by limitations that contemporary states do limit themselves, and it is devoted to the principles that contemporary states devote themselves to. Exactly as we see again in the Torah and in Shmuel, Kechol Amim Asher just like all the nations we see around. And parenthetically, of course, this is indeed one of the very principles of the very nature of Zionism. The very nature of Zionism, the very claim of traditional political Zionism was that the Jews are not, as some Jewish and other thinkers said, just a religion. The Jews are not an ethnic group. The Jews are not just a people with a shared history, but the Jews are a nation that they should take their place among the family of nations. They should create a state, a nation state like other nation state. And that, again, for many Zionists at least, was the very raison d'etre, the very basis for political Zionism. And of course, some of the opponents of Zionism, both in the religious camp and the non-religious camp, were opposed precisely to this principle. Either they said that describing the Jewish people as a nation like any other nation is denying the uniqueness of Am Israel or of Knesset Israel as a people with its direct special relationship with with God and whose national nature depends on this relationship. And of course there were other opponents to this idea who said that the Jews might have a shared culture, even a shared religion, but they are not a nation in any way. But as I said, beyond the ideological question, the fact that the Declaration of Independence defines the nature of the state of Israel as a state that will adhere to the international principles of what a state is that might have import to our further halachic discussion. The second question which I want to relate to is the question of who declared the state, who established the state as such. And I mentioned before the signatories of the Declaration of Independence say we are the members of Moest Dayam, which was a representative uh, body, and they define themselves as the representatives of the Yishuv Ha'ivri the Hebrew Yishuv, and we know there's sometimes a difference in contemporary parlance between Ivri and Yehudi, but we'll leave that for now, and the members of the, and representatives of the Zionist movement, we are declaring the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Yisrael. We all know that the question of what exactly is a Jewish state is a question that has been debated from that very day till our day, and Emirates Hashem, the debate will continue ad biad goel tzedek. But regardless of exact, the exact content of what the idea was as a Jewish state, it is pretty clear that the 
majority of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence certainly did not see it as a state that is committed to Torah as such. We'll get back to that later. But here I want to raise another question. To what extent were the people who were declaring the state of Israel, were they representatives indeed of Am Yisrael, of the Jewish people as a whole? We know, for instance, that only a minority of the Jewish people were officially Zionists before 1948. And I'm not only talking about the Torah Jews who did not support the Zionist movement, but there were other, many other Jews who, for whatever reason, did not see themselves as Zionists and did not necessarily support the establishment of the State of Israel. For our purposes, this is important because it raises the question, indeed, does the State of Israel have the right to act on behalf of the Jewish people as a whole? Does it have the authority of a Jewish state in that it represents the Jewish people? And this may have halachic implications. Just to give an example, the State of Israel sees itself as the representative of the Jewish people that perished in the Holocaust. The ability that Israel has in its laws to try Nazi criminals, even though the State of Israel did not exist when the crimes of the Nazis were perpetrated, is based on the legal assumption that the State of Israel is indeed the representative of the Jewish people. It indeed, therefore, is the heir of the millions who were killed in the Holocaust, and therefore, as such, it has a right both to try Nazi criminals, such as Eichmann, and has the right also to demand reparations in the name of the victims of the Holocaust. If you think about it, it is not something self-evident. It is not at all self-evident that the State of Israel, which uh, then and probably now only contains a minority of the Jewish people, uh, can can speak in the name of the entire Jewish people. This question of who exactly declared the existence of the State of Israel and agreed to its establishment, this is important to the extent that we conclude that some type of consent is necessary to establish the halachic authority of the state in whichever way we see that halachic authority, and we'll get to that later. So therefore, for instance, it is very interesting that one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence was, for example, uh, Rav Yitzhak Meir Levine, the leader of Agudat Israel, as well as Harav Kamen Kahana, the leader of Poalei Agudat Israel. These people certainly were not Zionists, and they don't fit into the category of the leaders of the Zionist movement, but nevertheless, they did sign the Declaration of Independence. They saw themselves as part of that Jewish community in Eretz Israel, which is now declaring the existence of a Jewish state. That might have very great importance. By the way, I'll say in parenthesis, that the whole fact that Agudat Israel signed the Declaration of Independence is not so clear-cut. Uh, there's a book by a opponent to the right of Agudat Israel named Tzvi Weinman, who tries to question 
the procedure that led to the fact that Rav Yitzhak Levine signed the Declaration of Independence because of the malfunctioning of the Moetzik Doya Torah. And as we know, the Moetzik Doya Torah is theoretically at least the highest organ of Agudat Israel and certainly should have been called to make such a drastic and far-reaching decision assigning the Declaration of the Independence of recognizing the existence of the State of Israel as a Jewish state. After Agudat Israel had traditionally opposed the establishment of a Jewish state, so uh, whatever the procedure was within Agudat Israel, it certainly stands to reason that Rabbi Shemayel Levin acted according to the instructions of the Ger Rebbe, who certainly was the most important leader uh, of the Hasidic community, at least in those days. In any case, the participation of a representative of Gudat Israel and of Boer Gudat Israel in the Declaration of Independence does signify a much broader consent to the establishment of the state than uh, one perhaps would have thought that it was only that of the Zionist element within the Jewish people. We'll get to that point later, but I do want to emphasize now the three possible ways in which we can conceptualize the state of Israel from a halachic point of view, or we can conceptualize the ways in which the laws of the state of Israel have halachic authority. And we will mention the problems involved in each one, especially as none of them relate to exactly to the existence of a modern state. Here I am basing myself especially on a well-known article by Professor Eliyev Shochetman, uh, which was printed in Shnatot Mishpat HaYivri, volume uh, 1617, that appeared in Tavshin Nun, Tavshin Nun Aleph, which is called Hakarata Halacha Bechukei Medinat Yisrael, the halachic recognition in the laws of the laws of Medinat Yisrael, in which he tries to draw a broad picture of the different options, halachic options involved in the status of the laws of the State of Israel. When we deal with this question of the laws of the State of Israel, we have to always distinguish carefully between different aspects of the legal system, of the political system, of the authority of the state. We have, for instance, questions of laws, of takanot, for instance, transportation laws, the law which says that if you cross at a red light, you have to pay such and such. Is there a halachic uh, uh, requirement to pay that amount? Do you have to pay a parking ticket? Uh, are these halachically legitimate actions, or are they gezo? Okay, that's one kind of issue. We have the general question of taxes. We have the question of criminal law. When the state imposes a penalty, whether of prison or a fine on someone for uh, transgressing criminal act, is that halachically uh, meaningful? Does that have halachic status or is it a prohibited activity? Then we have the question of private law. In other words, when we have a dispute between two people, Ruven has a dispute with Shimon regarding a business transaction that they had. And the state, uh, in the context of organizing society, has established rules and laws 
in order to govern those disputes and has established courts that try such cases or educate such disputes on the basis of the laws that it has established. What is the status of those laws? And last, but certainly not least, we have the question of life and death, the question of war. Does the state of Israel have the authority to declare a war? When declaring a war means that it requires people to endanger their life. That is my master question of Danina Fasod, and establishing the fact does the state have uh, the possibility to do that, of course, will be a very, very crucial issue, one which we will try to deal with extensively. In any case, as I mentioned, Sochatman raises three possibilities to establish the authority of the laws of the state. I will just describe them shortly, and then we will begin to go into more detail. The first is a category that we have become familiar with in our previous meetings, the notion of Mishpat HaMelech. This is based on the notion that the State of Israel is the inheritor, as it were, of the power of the king, that there exists a possibility to establish a king over the Jewish people, whether it is through the mitzvah minui melech, or, again, as we saw last time in the name of Rav Kook, that in the absence of a king who, if there is no such king available, or if we have not performed the mitzvah of minui melech, nevertheless, there exists within the nation the power, the potential to establish a political system that will have the rights or the political authority that the Torah gives to a king. Of course, the question will be, as we already hinted, does indeed the state of Israel have the status of a king? Does the unique circumstances which brought about the establishment of the state of Israel, do they fit a halachic template of the monarchy? And of course, another question, if the monarchy is established by people who have no connection or commitment to Torah, does that have any bearing on such a monarchy? Okay, not only, I'm saying in parentheses, not only is the king itself not a tzaddik, to say the least, in any situation, but the uh, entire system was not established solely or even mainly by people committed to Torah, does that have any impact on our ability to say that the state has the status of malchut? The second category invoked by Shochetman is the category which we're also familiar with, we've mentioned it briefly, is the category of Dina de Malchuta Dina. The law of the king is law. That, we probably know, is invoked in the Talmud, usually, or always in the Talmud, to refer to a non-Jewish kingdom. The laws of a non-Jewish kingdom are binding on Jews, 
because dina de machuta dina. To simplify matters uh, for the moment, we can mention three different major approaches in the Rishonim as to the justification for the principle of Dina de Machuta Dina. By the way, I'll refer her to an extensive book by Professor Shmuel Shiloh entitled Dina de Machuta Dina, who traces both the history and the halachic discussions regarding Dina de Machuta Dina in the Gemara and the Rishonim and the Achronim. In any case, the famous opinion that is often quoted is that of the Rashbam. In Baba Batra, Dafnun Dalit Amud Bet, in which he basically says that the basis for Dina de Machuta Dina is the fact that all the subjects of the king accept upon themselves the laws of the king and his decisions, and therefore the uh, ownership of something on the basis of Chuki HaMelech, on the basis of the decree of the king, is not Gezel, but everyone has accepted that these be the ground rules regarding ownership of things. The notion of consent as a basis for Dina de Machuta Dina can also be found in the Rambam, in Hilchok Zeilava Aveda, Perek Hei Halacha Yudchet, which is a Perek that talks about the whole question of the authority of the king and the status, if the king has taken away property or has imposed taxes, if such a thing is gezel or not. So, at the end of the parak, he says, When do we say that the king's authority is din ha-machuta din 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 In the king whose coins are legal tender, in those nations. Because that fact that people use the coin of the king, the coin of the realm, that is a acceptance of the fact that this king is indeed the king of the land. But if not, then uh, then it's, his actions are not that of a king because he's not really has been accepted as a king, but he is like a gazlan. So the Rambam here seems to have an approach similar to that of the Rajbam. Another famous opinion is that of the Ran in the Dharim, which is brought in the name of the Tosfot, and we find in the number of Chuvot in the Rishonim, that the basis for the Machut Adina is the ownership of the land by the king. The king is the owner, the master of the land, and therefore... Uh, anyone who resides in the territory of the king is subject to his decrees. That language, of course, evokes our association with the feudal system that existed in the Middle Ages, the fact that the authority of the king was ultimately based on the fact that he is the greatest landowner of all, and all other ownership of land is subject uh, to his whim, but uh, in any case, uh, the opinion of the Ran, or excuse me, the opinion of the Tosfot, which is quoted by the Ran, uh, the result of which, the law, therefore, of Dina de Machuta Dina, is not appropriate in Eretz Yisrael, because they claim that in Eretz Yisrael, the land does not belong to the king, who may have captured it temporarily, but ultimately the land belongs to Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael is not a feudal tenant on the Eretz Yisrael, but rather they are Baalim themselves. 
And therefore, the law of Dina de Machuta Dina does not apply if we accept that Shita. Dina de Machuta Dina in a Jewish king, so we have to note that in the same parak we quoted before, Rambam Hilchok Zeil Vaveda Parakei Alach Yud Aleph, the Rambam specifically says that the law of Din HaMelech Din who applies Ben Shreya HaMelech Goy, Ben Shreya HaMelech Yisrael. So it stands to reason that this is based on his assumption that both cases, the authority of a Jewish king, authority of a non-Jewish king, ultimately have the same basis. And therefore, there's no distinction between them. He doesn't distinguish if it's Eretz Israel or not, or he doesn't hint at the fact that they're two separate sources of authority of a Jewish king and a non-Jewish king. The third possibility for understanding the idea of the end of is based on the notion that there is no essential difference between Malchut Yisrael and Malchut Umot HaOlam. And the same principle, such as Mishpat HaMelech, that establishes the rule of uh, a non-Jewish king, applies also to a Jewish king. And uh, therefore, uh, that the indeed, just like Mishpat HaMelech, if we say that that applies to a non-Jewish king equally. We could base the notion of Dinah Machut Adina on Mitzvot Noach and say that the law of Dinim includes the establishment of a stable political system. So again, to reiterate, these are three types of Dinah Machut Adina, three ways of explaining Dinah Machut Adina, which is the second option we have for understanding the laws of the State of Israel. And the third option is that of Takanot HaKahal. The third option is to see uh, the legislation or the uh, laws uh, or the rules, the regulations of a state as equivalent to those of a self-governing kihila, which we're familiar with, especially uh, during the period of Galut, how Jewish communities determined and established laws for themselves, to see the laws of the State of Israel as takanot takahal, therefore giving them legitimacy. This is another topic, we'll talk about that later, but again, we have seen three halachic categories that can be used in understanding the present-day situation. One, mishpat hamelech, seeing the State of Israel as a malchut, with all that means. Two, Dina de Machuta Dina, and for that we, of course, will have to establish that Dina de Machuta Dina applies in Eretz Israel and applies to a given situation that we were referring to. And three, Takanat Hakahal, to see the laws of the State of Israel as an extension of the laws of any kihila. Obviously, there are legal issues involved here, and there are also ideological issues. Clearly, someone who sees Medinat Israel as nothing but a large Jewish community which happens to be positioned in Eretz Israel will tend to accept the positions of Dinah Machuta or of Takanot Kahal. Whereas, Zionists, religious Zionists, who see indeed the state of Israel as a renaissance of Jewish sovereignty, as a renewal of the 
Jewish self-rule, such as Machut Chashmonaim, if we don't talk about Bayit Rishon, at least we'll talk about Bayit Sheni, of Machut Beit Chashmonaim, V'chazra HaMachut L'Yisrael, as we talk, as the Ramam talks about Hilchot Chanukah. So if one sees the state of Israel as a renewal of Machut Yisrael, obviously there will be a tendency to use that category in order to explain the halachic legitimacy of the state of Israel, but we will go into more detail later on. One more point that has to be mentioned, beyond these three categories, we have another possibility that can offer legitimacy to the laws of the state of Israel, and that is the category of minhag. In other words, since we know that minhag is a very important basis in halacha in general, and in the name of specifically, in other words, there is a notion, halacha, of course, of kemirudat, of an implicit contract, when people engage in, uh, in ac- commercial activity, they base themselves on certain assumptions on what is customary to be done. We have notions like kinyan situmta, etc., etc., in which what is accepted generally becomes part of the halacha, not because it has been legislated by an authoritative halachic uh, source, but because of the very fact that it is a minhag, and it's not, I'm not talking about a minhag as something that determines what the halacha is when we have a machloket or something like that. I'm talking about the minhag as establishing what gemirudat is. Not so that might be also significant regarding midinat Israel. Just to give an example, uh, labor law when someone uh, takes a job, and there's certain laws in the state of Israel regarding seniority regarding what you are to be expected, how you are to be paid, what additional payments uh, you are eligible for. It's safe to assume, or at least there's definitely reason to assume, that if a person uh, did not stipulate, whether both an employer or an employee did not stipulate specifically that they're not subject to those laws, that we can say that they're implicitly we can assume that they did accept upon themselves themselves those laws, and therefore uh, the, the, there might, they might be halakhically binding. Someone told me that there, indeed there's a safer uh, of a, I believe he told me, a Belzer Chosid, regarding labor law, which has two separate parts. One, which is the halacha on Pidin, which he bases himself on the Gemara and the Shulchan Aruch and the Poskim, and al Pimin Hag, in which he basically explicates the Israeli labor law. And he says, that's the minhag. If that's the minhag, of course, then that is halachically binding. So, we might mention that later, but that, of course, is a separate category. That is not something that is halachically binding per se. It's halachically binding because of the minhag. And here, uh, it really might not matter what the basis for the minhag is, but if we can establish that there is a tacit agreement between the two parties, then based on uh, universal uh, behavior, then it stands to reason that it has halachic basis without using one of the three categories we will mention. In our next meeting, we'll go more thoroughly into these three categories and explain the differences between them and the implications of accepting each one.